0: Welcome to the One Shot Podcast. Our guest today is Dr. Gad Saad, who is a professor, a evolutionary behavioral scientist, which mm. that's a mouthful, mm. uh, author, creator, and the host of the popular The Sad Truth on YouTube and on all podcast platforms. Dr. Saad, how are you today, sir?
1: Thank you, so much. I'm so excited to be talking to you. This may be one of the first times ever where my hosts outrank me in testosterone could that be possible i don't know about that well uh, looks can be deceiving i promise you
0: (laughs) we might not rank you on that but i can promise you our iq's together do not equal yours Uh, so (laughs) but uh yeah we want to get into this um and, and the reason we wanted to have you on is because you have some interesting thoughts on current culture and the climate today uh, that we're certainly very interested in diving into. I think the best way to set up that discussion, though, is by going through your story and learning where you come from and, and allowing people to understand where your perspective comes from. But even before all that, mm-hmm. we do want to know where this whole Pittsburgh Steelers, Dallas Cowboys. Mm-hmm. You were telling yeah. us a little about before we started pressing record. What's going on there? Who Who do you root for?
1: Well, I'll, I'll answer it as I tell my, my sort of history as a, as a young child because it, the, the Pittsburgh versus Dallas story happened when I first moved from Lebanon, escaping the war, to Canada. So mm. in, in telling the story, I will address that particular okay. okay. So I was born in uh, Lebanon. Uh, we were part of the last remaining Jews who had steadfastly, you know, refused to kind of heed the warning signs in the Middle East. And we thought that it was still a good idea to, you know, to be living uh, in a place where we were, you know, grossly outnumbered. We were a very small minority. But, you know my parents had a good life we we there was always you know uh rampant anti-semitism even in a place as quote progressive and tolerant as lebanon but you know we we made do with our lives my parents you know had good businesses and so on but then when the civil war broke out in 1975 i was uh, just about to turn uh i was ten and a half when it started uh it became impossible to be jewish in lebanon and so we we went through the first year of the civil war which is more butchery and violence than any 10,000 people should see in mm-hmm. their lifetimes and then we were lucky enough to be able to uh, to escape and get uh, you know papers to to move to canada so that's sort of my my childhood having gone through the lebanese civil war and to to your question about the pittsburgh steelers i so we moved to uh, canada in october uh, uh, end of October 1975. And, you know, it's unbelievable how children can adapt to any situation. I, I went from, you know, being a, you know, Arabic is my mother tongue. I'm growing up in Lebanon, you know, avoiding 17,000 ways of being killed in any given moment to suddenly falling in love with football as an 11-year-old at that point. I had turned mm-hmm. 11. And the first Super Bowl that I uh, watched was Super Bowl 10, which was the Pittsburgh Steelers versus the Dallas Cowboys. And I'm not exactly sure why I fell in love with the Dallas Cowboys and specifically oh, wow. with Roger the Dodger Staubach, who mm. became my idol in as a, but now what's the logic for a Lebanese kid who's never seen football to <laughs> suddenly become so emotionally vested in Roger, the Dodger star? Like I can't explain it. Some things can't be explained. And so I, well, because he's captain
2: America. That's yeah, why yeah, no, that is exactly, exactly.
1: why <laughs> maybe exactly. And then uh, I stayed uh, with the Dallas Cowboys until, you know, Danny white came in and then I j- jumped the ship. And then my most recent team, if you care to know has been, New Orleans Saints, because yeah. I love Alvin Kamara. Yeah, you know, uh, I
3: like it. We don't care to know.
1: <laughs> well, honestly, we
3: we're, just gonna say, know. we're just going to say in the 70s, actually.
2: <laughs> yes. uh, but, but really, though, going, going back to the 70s, and I think for the younger generation, uh, for the first time, uh, and let's just speak about Americans, it's the first visualization of living through some type of war like that and what's going on with Ukraine, right, the Russian invasion not the same level right as the civil war in Lebanon that's not I'm not comparing those but visually so my question is as a young child and seeing things that no child should see how how were your parents in protecting you what was life like in that year year and a half obviously it was difficult before that um, but but actually in the civil war what was that like as a child and then you and then what did you see your parents doing and, and reacting to that situation
1: yeah uh great question uh i'll give you a, a few little snippets of the life of a you know w- you know war person in, as a child so one of the ways that you would surely get killed in beirut among many many ways was uh sniper fire so mm-hmm. there'd be these these snipers on top of buildings who would just sit there and knock out anybody who was within the division of their scope. And so my parents would tell me if I was going to play in a particular area to never cross that particular line, because then that would open me up to the sniper fire coming. Because we lived in an area Uh, Almost on the Green Line, which separated East and West Beirut, where there were quite a few tall buildings that uh, some of you can later Google. There was what was called the Hotel Battles. These these tall buildings by Beirut standards, where these tall hotel buildings, where they would fight for access to those buildings because then if they could get to the vantage point from the top Mm. of the building, they could just kind of be taking out people left right and center and so imagine as a child being told you know play with your soccer ball here but never cross this line because your head's going to be blown another another quick snippet i can give you but again i I can keep you here for five hours telling you about. i mean because we're scheduling that five-hour call by the way i'm already (laughs) locked in (laughs) i mean the, the brutality of the civil war in lebanon as you rightly mentioned is really the the measure of brutality, because the Lebanese Civil War was just outlandish because it truly was tribal in its most basic sense, religious tribalism. And so uh, we learned how to read the signature. You know, when bombs are coming in, Mm. there's kind of a whistle that happens before it hits. And so we learned to either literally duck for our lives or not, depending on the whistle signature of a bomb. That's the kind of adaptation that life becomes banal like so for i'll give you another one other quick example uh there may be three or four streets down from us unbelievable butchering going on where people are killing each other but that's way down there four streets away we're okay here so you contextualize everything you relativize everything you try to live day to day hoping that you're going to live the next minute and uh here I am,
2: luckily, and 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 we have and we have adults, adults claiming that they are being verbally attacked because you disagree with their thought processes. <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah. yeah. you. And, and,
1: that, and that's and here, why, by the way. Oh, sorry, I'm sorry. I no, I was just going to
2: say. And here you are at 10 years old, identifying the different whistles of bombs either being dropped on top of you or right next to you or two blocks over. And I, I see. I'm blown away like from a parenting standpoint too. It's like, Hey, okay, look, you can go outside, play, play soccer, whatever. Just make sure you don't Mm -hmm. cross this street or this line because we don't send our kids outside today to play at all. Yes. Oh my gosh. There's a car that's driving 27 miles an hour in the neighborhood. No. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's just, it it blows my mind. Oh, so thank you for sharing a, a snippet of that, but I'm I'm serious about that additional call
1: because I literally could just listen to these stories all day long. Very thank you. Uh, you know, uh, speaking about the the victimology stuff that you mentioned, that's you know one of the things I talk about in the mm-hmm. in the parasitic mind in my last book mm-hmm. is you know all of this full victimology because again what. You know, to the extent that you guys appreciate all of this, you know, whining about, you know, you misgendered me and all this kind of stuff. Mm. Imagine someone who truly faced the kind of adversity and hardships that I faced. It's it's an existential injury to me mm. that you are some pampered, you know, Oberlin college kid who is annoyed because someone may or may not have misgendered you. That demonstrates that you actually, I don't mean you, but the person yeah, from it Oberlin, does. it's not has never sampled from the buffet of possible societies and possible realities in the world. And that's why oftentimes I say that some of the most dogged defenders of the Western tradition are typically immigrants such as myself who have witness out there who appreciate the anomalous beauty of the West of the United States and so on. And therefore we're the ones who say, wait a second, stop whining. You should see where I come from. Mm -hmm. Maybe you wouldn't be whining so much.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, We're definitely going to dive into that. And that's why we wanted to set it up with your story because again, you have a unique perspective. You've, you've been through, through true adversity and hardship. I am curious though, at at 10 years old, for instance, and this may be an unfair question because most 10 year olds don't think this way, but, was there a sense of appreciating the moment and I have to live for today? Were you able to conceptualize that at that age? Did that did that environment teach you that at all?
1: I can't say that. What I can tell you is that of all of the, I mean, truly astonishingly horrifying things that we went through. I mean, I'll just give you an example. One time when there was a ceasefire uh, where people would go out to just get water and bread and so on this would typically be where a lot of uh, civilians would die, because, of course, nobody adhered to the ceasefire, seriously. So you'd go out to line up in a queue for bread, and then someone would come along and, you know, mow down everybody. And so my mother and sister were going to the local bakery to get some bread, and they were delayed for a few minutes, and the entire line of, you know, people who were waiting had apparently been mowed down. So literally, had they not been delayed, then... You know, my mother and daughter and sister would have probably died. So, so death was at every moment. So I, I'll give you one other quick example before I, I, I answer directly your question. So, one of the other ways that you would die in Lebanon is in Lebanon you had what was called in, the Arabic word is hawiyeh, which is like an internal ID, like a passport, but mm-hmm. that you, that the, the police, for example, if they stop you, they say, "Show me your papers," and then those papers had the most conspicuous thing on those papers was your religion because everything in lebanon is viewed Mm. through the prism of religion now if you were jewish and you were going to be stopped by one of the roadblocks of the of the million of different militias that were fighting each other there weren't going to be many roadblocks that you were going to be let through Mm. without having a bullet in your head when you have the the arabic word so the arabic word for jewish is yahudi but the but they wrote israeli which means israelite so it even created more animus against mm, you because mm, they didn't even put you as Lebanese that you were an Israelite, even though I had nothing to do with Israel. I was just the Lebanese who happened to be Jewish. Mm-hmm. And so we were afraid to even walk in the street because if some random militia person says, show me your papers, mm-hmm. then that literally meant we were probably going to be killed. Mm-hmm. So I don't I think I was just busy trying to make sure that I lived till the next day, mm-hmm. right? So I didn't have this kind of big existential uh you know, it was literally moment to moment. But I do remember, and I, I mentioned this in, in chapter one of the book, that arguably the most frightening experience I ever had, which really kind of hit home, was a story that I called the pomegranate story. So I'll, I'll mention it to the people who, who may not have read the book. Uh, so my, my parents had hired a guy who would come and provide us with the following service. So you know how... In, in let's say in a bathroom today, you have disposable papers that you could mm-hmm. kind of take mm-hmm. out. In the old days, there used to be a roller, like a, an actual tissue roller, that a guy would come. Let's say in our, we had one in our kitchen where he would place the roller so that whenever, let's say, my mother is doing the cooking, she would use that roller to dry the hands, and then he would come back and change that roller. You know, every week or two weeks. Mm-hmm. So this this is the extent to which we knew that guy. So, one night during the middle of unbelievably intense fighting where, you know, no sane person would ever go out, there was a knock on our door. And, you know, a knock on your door in the middle of the Civil War can never be a good thing. So, I walked... So, this kind of speaks to your question of, you know, an existential moment. So, I walked to the door and I said, Who's there? And so, he said... I can't remember if his name was it was either Ahmed or Muhammad. Uh, so let's go with Muhammad. Uh, so he says, "Oh, kid, it's Muhammad, the guy you know who changes your uh, your thing." Uh, he was with some other guys. Uh, you know, open the door. We we've got a gift for you. Now at that moment, you talk about the sliding door, you know, scenario. Mm. If I am gullible enough to open that door, I'm probably not sitting here with mm-hmm. you having this conversation. And so I go and get my mother and ask her to come. And so he, so then they start having a conversation where the, where he's becoming a lot more ominous and open the door. And we end up calling. So this speaks to the hashtag defund the police bullshit. <laughs> uh, we end up calling in the middle of the Civil War. Uh, this unit in Arabic it's called Sattash, which means sixteen. It's like the it's it's an internal division of police. And unbelievably, in the middle of the brutality of the Civil War, they took our call and they came over. So now we open the door and the head cop invites the, the Muhammad and the guys in. and you'll see why it's the story is called the pomegranate story. So he come so they all everybody comes in and he says, "So tell me why why did you come and knock on these people's uh, door?" says oh because you know we went up in the mountains my friends and i and we we picked some pomegranate and so we brought it back to give them so he looks in the basket and there was actually pomegranate mm. so then the elite cop says to them wait a second your relationship to them is that you change their roller and in the middle of the civil war when there is massive fighting everywhere you're coming with a bunch of other guys to give them a gift of pomegranates if i f- catch you here again There'll be trouble, and so the guy, the the Muhammad guy, says, "I'll be back for you." Okay, mm. and then we left Lebanon before he came back for us. Now, to me, mm. that story is the most terrifying because it captures the vagaries of life, the randomness. Had I been dumb enough and gullible mm. enough to open that door? Had the cops not heeded our call, which would have been perfectly possible in the middle of a civil war, mm. and so. Uh, so for all of those reasons, that story might be the one that remains kind of as an existentially mm. poignant moment in my life. Wow, that is amazing. I mean, that really, you, you
2: just think, like you said, so easily. Yeah. Life could have been over. Path could have been over. I mean, that's – that's or path changed. That's yeah, insane. That's
3: insane. So what was your experience? So after experiencing all that and then you flee to Canada, what was the experience like when you got to Canada with the family? What did you guys see? What was – life like there Well,
2: will talk about maybe the journey like the exit like what what
1: was that process and i don't mean yeah. to like no, derail fine. your no, question but
2: yeah i mean it was, it was it was it was dumb <laughs> but
1: <No. laughs> uh, so i'll first answer the journey then i'll answer wow. the how was it like to be in canada uh See, so we <laughs> flew from beirut airport uh to copenhagen denmark I, I don't know exactly why i think that's just the, the way there and we ended up spending I don't know, maybe thirty-six hours in Copenhagen. Mm. And so I remember that when we landed in Copenhagen and I was walking around, I no longer was used to walking in the street, not worrying that I was gonna be killed. And so mm. I thought I felt very free that I could just walk the street. Mm. So that that was something that I remember. But if we backtrack for a second, I tell in the parasitic mind this another one of these truly poignant moments in my life where as the uh uh a pilot the captain said that we were now out of the air space of lebanon my mother takes out a a pendant that has like a like a star of david Mm -hmm. and she 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 puts it around my neck and she says now you can wear the wear this and not hide who you are Mm -hmm. Uh, so that was a very very powerful powerful moment Uh, now it's i'll just mention one other thing about Even going back in that journey, when we were leaving to the Beirut airport, there was no way that you could get to the Beirut airport without having a particular group of militia protecting you, because all around the Beirut airport were uh, checkpoints that were manned by the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization. Mm -hmm. And therefore, if you were going to try to get through to the airport, and if they weren't you know, on your side, you were never going to make that flight. So we had hired PLO militia. so when you guys, you know, mm. Westerners, yeah. you see guys that look like ISIS, well, mm. that's the guys who came to pick us up at our home. Now, when they picked us up, it could well have been that as they pick us up, we're being driven to a ditch mm-hmm. to for them to put a bullet in our head, right? I don't know what's going to happen to us. Right. And I remember the, the head guy of that militia group that was taking us to the airport, saw me looking at the clashing like the, the big machine gun. And you know, I'm a kid, so I'm excited by, and he says, Oh, do you want to hold it? And I remember I was so excited that I was holding the machine gun. And again, that guy could have been my murderer Mm. five minutes later. Mm. Now, as we drove to the airport. So I, I remember everything that I just told you is from my memory. Then there is a complete uh, void in my memory until we get to the airport and then tell the story I told you about the, the pendant and so mm-hmm. on and so I later asked my parents what how come I don't remember anything uh of the journey to the airport and then they told me that the reason for that it, it must have been my memory it was so traumatic that it, they repressed it uh, I repressed it that the guys had us kind of hidden at, on the bottom of the you know the cars mm-hmm. as they were going through neighborhood exchanging like ramble like, fire with because because they're palestinian militia so let's say they're now going through a christian neighborhood mm-hmm. where it's the phallicists that are you know manning that thing they're not going to be you know uh friendly to that group so they're going through like literally ramble style all these different neighborhoods with different tribal allegiances taking fire and giving fire while we're completely like underneath the luggage being hidden to, to protect us. I have zero recollection of that whole drive, wow. but I can remember everything beforehand and after. So that gives you a sense of the journey out of <laughs> Lebanon. Wow. Now, as we got, so to answer your question about what happened when I got to Le- uh, to Canada, I remember the first kind of, re- it was already reasonably cold, it was end of October. 1975 so it can get pretty cold by then in montreal and my one of my first things was the weather sucks here. It's cold. I've, I've never seen such, you know, cold weather. But I'd rather have snowflakes falling on me rather than bombs and snipers. Yeah, so that, yeah. really oh, reaction.
3: You know, you put so many things in perspective as a father. Now
0: I was gonna say your life in you know, Phoenix ain't shit. No, to this. I mean no. But I'm just
3: saying, as a father, just think about you and yeah. your kids today. And you know, you, you're on the ground and you're protecting your own babies, and you're going through this process to get to the airport and it's like i couldn't imagine you know you're right we're so damn spoiled we are so spoiled in 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 our lives today because you know i've never i couldn't imagine doing that with my own kids Mm -hmm. no going through that process and did you
1: have any siblings yeah so i have three three siblings okay all of whom are much older than me okay the next the next oldest is 10 years older, then 12 years older, and then almost 14 years older. Okay. And actually, one of my siblings, the next youngest, the one who's 10 years older than me, I tell of a uh, another one of those powerful stories from my childhood. So he was the Lebanese judo champion for many years in a row. Okay. And uh, after having won the Lebanese championship for a few years, he was visited by some men who explained to him, that it was maybe healthier for him to now retire, because of course it's not very good for a you know dirty Jew to mm. you know be constantly winning the Lebanese championship in a, in a fighting sport. And so you know it's enough, Jew boy. It's time to maybe now retire. Which of course he wasn't willing to do. In which case he ended up uh, leaving to pursue his uh, studies and his uh, judo career in Paris, France. Mm. Uh, France has a big history of you know judo uh, judo uh, you know uh, tradition, mm-hmm. and so he actually avoided the entire uh, civil war mm-hmm. because he had left prior to the start wow. of the civil war. Yeah. Already, the 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 anti semitism was quite you know virulent in the air. Yeah. But the the irony is that in 1976, so we we moved to Canada in October end of October 1975. The Montreal Olympics happened in Montreal in the summer of 1976 mm. and my brother represented Lebanon wow. in the Montreal Jewish Olympics so the dirty Jewish guy yeah. who was forced to leave Lebanon to pursue his judo career was then had the the dignity and the yeah. forgiveness in him mm. to then wear the flag of the of Lebanon and represent Lebanon and the Montreal Olympics. Yeah,
4: that's yeah. insane.
3: There's familiarity there, though. I mean, you think yeah. about the, you know, the Olympics and with Jesse Owens and I mean, they still even the Black Americans that mm-hmm. went to Nazi Germany to to, mm-hmm. to run a race it, when they were still getting discriminated here in the U.S. So I, I totally, yeah. I mean, there the discrimination across the board is just horrific. And I, you know, mm-hmm. I look, let's let's move forward because we we only have what 30 minutes left on yeah, this. Yeah, We got a
2: lot to cover. Still. Yeah, we have
3: so much to cover here uh go Ben. you want to leave on, yeah. no you leave I think, ben, okay you know?
2: so so yeah so you you go to Canada' just walk us through briefly okay um you know what life was like and then you know your schooling education where you were led yeah. once you were you know safe in Canada
1: so I, I I remember as though it's yesterday and I actually I just mentioned it to my family a few days ago because we were driving on that street that literally the first day as I was driven from our new apartment in montreal to my elementary school grade five iona elementary school i remember as i was being driven there you know really not knowing i mean i'm a kid who um, i was going to an english school mm-hmm. uh and, the, and the, just as a side note that's quite a rare thing in quebec because uh, quebec is French, very Fre- yeah, French. Home, yeah, home, the, French, right? yes. the only way that you can be allowed to go to an english school is if you have Uh, the right through one of your parents who had been educated in English. And my my mother had gone to the American School of Girls in Beirut. Mm. And so that gave me the right because I already spoke fluent French. Mm. So Arabic was my mother tongue and Lebanon used to be a French protectorate, French Mm. colony. So Mm. many of the educated class usually also spoke fluent French from the French system. And so my parents thought that it would be good for me to now go to English school. But I didn't speak a single... I mean, my exposure to to english was you know watching in awe clint eastwood in spaghetti <laughs> westerns, right and, and saying you know when i grow up i want to be clint eastwood yeah, yeah. you know cigar yeah. which i get i did end up being because i i kicked the crap out of Wo- the wokesters all day long yes <laughs> so, anyway, so, Gunslinging so right uh. so 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 i remember driving down uh, this street called queen mary and. Turn, mm-hmm. We're about to turn left to go to to my uh, elementary school. I get to the elementary school, and the teacher asks me because now the semester is already happening. Right, this is end of October. Uh, she asks me to get up and introduce myself, and so I'm going to say it in French, and then I'm going to translate. Uh, mon nom est Gad. Je viens du Liban. My name is Gad, and I come from Lebanon. But of course, the students were English speaking. So then i said liban and then i did like shooting like i'm trying to explain to them Mm. so that they know what lebanon means in french lebanon is liban and so i did and and the incredible thing is i ran into a kid who was in that class a few years ago at my daughter's grade five end of uh, year barbecue He came up to me and said, oh, my name is so-and-so. I said, of course, I remember you. You know, we we even went to high school together. He goes, I remember the story when you first came to class the first day. And it was so incredible, right? Because, you know, we are probably all old enough that, Mm -hmm. you know, we didn't. Our lives weren't on iPhones, right? Mm-hmm. So this is a memory that is personal to me, but now I have someone who bears witness yeah. to that exact mm-hmm. yeah. story, right. and he's yeah. telling it back to me verbatim. <laughs> so so to answer your question more broadly, uh, I then started getting educated in English, and uh, so I finished uh, elementary school here, finished high school in, in Quebec, and uh, it was. I was a very competitive soccer player. The, the goal was to... I always thought that I would become a professional soccer player and then eventually become a professor. I was only interested in two things in life, my my schooling and my soccer. Then at the age of uh, 17, I had a very, very serious um, injury in the Canadian Championship, Eastern Canadian Championships. That kind of put a, a, a ringer into my uh, soccer career. Uh, and then I stayed... In Montreal, all the way through my MBA, I did an, uh, an undergrad in math and computer science and an MBA at McGill University, McGill. which is awesome. yeah, yeah. referred to as the Harvard of the yes. North. Yep. <clears throat> Excuse me to my cough. Um, then after that, uh, I uh, left to the United States. I did a, a master's and masters and a PhD at Cornell. Uh, my specialty, I don't know if this is what you want me to cover, but you could stop me anytime you no, want. this but- is
2: great. It's perfect.
1: Uh, I, my uh, my specialty uh, specialization in my PhD was psychology of decision-making. Specifically in my doctoral dissertation, I looked at how much information do people look at before they stop and commit to a choice. So for example, if I'm choosing between two cars or two political candidates to, to vote for or two women, one of whom I'm going to ask to marry... We don't typically look at all of the available information. We Let's say there are 50 attributes that I could look at. I might look at 10 attributes and say, I've now seen enough to buy the Mazda, or I've seen mm-hmm. enough to vote for Trump, or I've seen enough to marry this woman. Well, so my, my doctoral dissertation I did is I looked at the cognitive processes, the mental processes that allow us to instantiate that stopping rule. And by stopping rule, I mean to stop and commit to a choice. I've seen enough to choose A or buy B or whatever. Yeah. So that was the the gist of my doctoral work, but during my doctoral training I had been exposed to the field of evolutionary psychology, which is uh, the application of evolution to study how the human mind has evolved. You know, why do we have the emotional system, the cognitive system, the behavioral system that we do? Yeah. And so I was really bitten by the evolution bug. So once I finished my PhD and got my first professorship, I then founded a new discipline, which I coined evolutionary consumption, which is the application of evolutionary psychology to study our consumatory nature. And, and I define consumption very broadly. It's not just consuming Coca Cola and Starbucks. We consume friendships. We consume religious narratives. We consume popular culture. Social and so media. I, yeah. My scientific work is at the intersection of evolutionary biology and consumer psychology. Mm
0: i want to take a quick break and thank our partners sleep number and highlight a couple things they're doing guys these sleep number beds are unreal the technology that they've created the feedback that it gives you on your sleep i've got the app opened up right here they tell you things like your heart rate your heart rate variability your breathing rate all these type uh, metrics and feedback to give you so that you can improve your quality of sleep they're all over the place you can go and check yourself out a sleep number store Wherever you live, go to sleepnumber.com as well. They've got great resources on there. We just talked about this not too long ago. They have a whole blog section, all these articles, things that you can improve your health. Sleep Number is definitely changing the game when it comes to betting. So get yourself to Sleep Number. Get yourself to sleepnumber.com and check them out. Now back to the episode. So you said you founded that. That wasn't a a well-known or well-sought-after study before uh, before you came on.
1: No, because uh, and t- even till today, almost thirty years later, you can get all of your business school education without ever hearing the word biology mentioned once. Yeah, oh, wow. and the reason, the reason for that is because the social sciences in general have have c- together agreed that what makes us sociologists or anthropologists or economists or psychologists is that we reject biology being important in explaining human affairs, Hmm. which, of course, is insane, Hmm. because how could it be that if you study every single other species on Earth, you would never imagine studying that species without understanding its the the biological mechanisms that shape its behavior, yet somehow there is one single species that transcends its biology, they're called human beings. Mm. And so even today, almost 30 years into my career, many people are still, uh, you know, angered by the idea that the same mechanisms that explain the behavior of your dog also explains our consumatory behavior. They they like to think that humans are cultural animals only, they are not biological animals. So,
0: rewinding the clock a little bit, what fascinated you about that field of study? What excited you? Why did you pursue that particular path?
1: Yeah, that, th- th- thank you. That's a great question. So, it, it actually happened. It's, it's one of those what's called episodic memories. You you know how you you remember exactly where you were when nine eleven happened. Mm-hmm. So that's called an episodic memory. So I I remember exactly when I fir- was first uh, turned on to evolutionary psychology. I was taking in my in my first semester. So I, I did my MS and PhD at Cornell. So my first uh, semester as a doctoral student, this is in fall 1990, uh, my doctoral supervisor suggested that I take a course, uh, in, it's an advanced social psychology course by a professor by the name of Dennis Regan. And about halfway through the semester, Professor Regan assigned a book that would ultimately change my scientific trajectory. The book was called Homicide which I highly recommend not only for you guys to read it, but for all of your viewers. It was written by two of the pioneers of evolutionary psychology, Margot Wilson and Martin Daly, a husband and wife team who actually were based in Canada at McMaster University in Ontario. What they were doing in the book is demonstrating how certain patterns of criminality happen in exactly the same way across time periods and across cultures for exactly the same reasons, precisely due to evolutionary mechanisms. Mm -hmm. And so maybe I'll give you two very quick examples. And and, and that answers the question of why I Mm -hmm. fell in love with the field, because it showed me the explanatory power of the framework. Once you understand the evolutionary framework, it allows you to unlock mysteries of human behavior very, very elegantly and very parsimoniously. So uh, so I'll give you two examples from that book. Number one, and if you don't mind me putting you on the spot, do you know what is the greatest predictor of danger to a child in a home? In other words, if if the child is likely to experience abuse, mm-hmm. what is the number one biggest predictor? So for example, you might answer uh, if there's alcoholism in the home. Uh, that's, that what would would yeah, that's what yeah. I would have said. Yeah, that's what I would have said. Do you want to take another crack before? I mean, usually when I do this in front of the class, I take 15, 20 guesses before I give them the actual answer. And Body language?
3: Is a body language? No,
1: no.
2: Uh,
3: you want to take
1: any other cracks, or should I just tell you?
2: I would say, uh, <laughs> is this globally, you're saying, correct? Yes, globally, globally. Um, is it single-parent households? No, I would say well, the opposite. Well, so that's,
1: that's a good guess. You could have thought single-parent household. You could have thought alcoholism. You could have thought if there had been abuse of the parent, parent then he, yeah. he or she can. So there are all sorts of these reasons, and they might explain some of the, the 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 variance in that phenomenon. The number one predictor that's a hundredfold greater than the next bigger predictor, to give you a sense of what hundredfold means, typically in science, when you talk about something having, let's say, uh, odds ratio of 1.2 that means it's 20 Mm percent more likely if you take this pill it increases your chances of alleviating your symptoms by 20 Mm percent. that would be considered a big effect Mm -hmm. so 1 to 1.2 would be big this is 1 to 100 Mm -hmm. so it gives you a sense of how big it is well the number one factor is if there is a step parent in the home Mm -hmm. okay wow that's (laughs) and the reason for that Again, from an evolutionary perspective, it's very clear. And by the way, you see it across many animals. For example, lions, when new lions uh, displace the resident dominant males of the, the pride, cubs. the first thing they do is what, gentlemen? Kill, do you know? Kill the cubs. Kill the cubs. Why? Yeah. Because male lions do invest in their pride. Mm-hmm. And therefore, it, it is suboptimal for me, if I'm a lion, to spend a lot of time investing in the cubs that were sired by another male Mm -hmm. now it doesn't mean that we are justifying infanticide explaining something doesn't mean you're condoning it but nature doesn't care about your feelings it (laughs) solves adaptive problems right Mm -hmm. so in the human context we have for example the cinderella effect Mm -hmm. right the cinderella Mm uh story is about what it's about the evil stepmother but she's not dispositionally evil she's only evil to her stepdaughter she's very nice to her Mm -hmm. biological Mm -hmm. children and so so that, so that's one example whereby in one swoop, you're able to explain at a rate that social scientists have never been able to, to explain why child abuse is more likely to happen in some homes versus in wow, others. I'll give you another quick example. Uh, domestic violence happens throughout all time periods and across all societies. Who do you think is the most dangerous person in a woman's life? It's not the serial rapist who's hiding in the trees it's usually her husband or yeah. long-term partner yeah. and what is the number one reason that will drive him to you know you know to extreme violence either suspected or realized infidelity right mm-hmm. now again you're not justifying domestic violence but to the extent that it happens in very predictable ways why does it happen in this way well because human beings are a biparental species meaning that human males also invest heavily in their children and therefore your ancestors and mine are not those who didn't mind if their women slept with 73 other guys because then i'm going to spend the next 18 years investing in a child that i don't know if it's mine or it's Mm. the sexy greek gardener who sired that (laughs) Mm. right therefore we evolved the cognitive system the emotional system the behavioral system to react very harshly to sexual infidelity Mm. and so when i saw the parsimony, the explanatory elegance of the evolutionary framework, I had my epiphany. I said, well, I'm going to take exactly that framework and apply it to study economic Mm. decision-making consumer decision-making and so on. Mm. Mm. So walk
2: us through. So you go and and you get your, you get your doctorate in this and your focus is that, and, and you create this, uh, this new, um, this new segment of that and around the consumption and decision-making. So as, when you go there, what is that path for you? Uh, As you say, okay, now I've got this degree, what am I, how do I use this? How do I earn a living?
1: Right, so uh, as an academic, you know, one of the things that you're tasked with, I mean, there are three elements to uh, being a professor. There is your research, your teaching and then service you know serving on committees and Mm. so on and so on administrative committees so you're supposed to do all these all three of these things but many people don't know that overwhelmingly as i mean you're not a high school teacher where Mm. your predominant job is to teach so teaching for professors is actually a very very small part of my job my main responsibility is to publish Mm. uh, papers right or or you know in some disciplines also to publish books and therefore, you have to create new knowledge. And so, I set out to publish many papers within this new nascent discipline of evolutionary consumption. It wasn't an easy sell because, as I hinted at earlier, uh, many social scientists remain quite hostile Absolutely, to, right. to mm. applying biology to study human affairs. Yep. But you know, being the dogged guy that I am, being someone who doesn't you know succumb to the orthodoxy. Uh, i said i don't care the the pursuit of truth is more important than my career aspiration i will just pursue truth where it takes me and i'm sure that the cosmos will 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 you know will iron out the details and you know i did pay a price because i wasn't invited to some of the cool kids parties because <laughs> i was you know an, an irreverent thinker but in the grand scheme of things mm-hmm. uh if you're going to name and forgive me i'm not trying to be immodest, but if you're going to name professors that might be known in many households, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to say that few of my hater professors are, <laughs> are going to are be those, remembered. Are those remembered. And names. here I am talking to super cool guys like you.
4: So I, <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to clarify
1: yeah. though,
2: what, what baffles me is, as you had um, an element of resilience to your your character and your nature that blows my mind through what with what you went through that there's actually some resilience that comes through that adversity that you faced <laughs> like taking on these professors like yeah. there's no, yeah that's 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 way scarier than bombs dropping on me and, and yeah. being shot yeah, exactly, at yeah. exactly.
1: nothing nothing more than a nasal whiny professor to really uh, scare the shit yeah out. that's yeah. right
2: <laughs> I'm I'm gonna write an article about you yeah.
0: so I, I think that sets up well. Yeah. You know, to to where we are today, with what you're doing today, and and you know, there's a um, hundred questions going through the head. Maybe we start with this, something that, that bounces around in my head. Have things always been this, you know, tribal, this uh, divisive, or is it truly different now than it has been in the past? I mean, I'm just curious. Is it? Are we, are we prisoners of the moment, or is it truly different than it's ever
2: been? But I think it's divisive trivial over trivial things right yeah. like i think the tribal divisive i mean that's been going on forever i mean you go back to egyptians to hebrews right you go, i mean you go way back right there's always that right there's that division but we're just creating ways now for yeah, that
1: so right? I, I think you're exactly right so to, uh you 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 preempted what i was going to answer uh It is an inherent feature of the architecture of the human mind to engage in coalitional thinking or a a fancy way of saying blue team versus red team or Mm. us versus them right so when we were you know walking around uh, merrily in the african savannah there was the the group of typically about 100 up to 150 people with whom i consider to be my in-group and then everybody else is the enemy and actually there are fantastic studies psychological studies that demonstrate that the 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 human capacity to create these artificial distinctions between us and them is truly remarkable. So a, a one classic study that I'll mention and actually it was I had first learned of this study. I don't I don't remember the, the reference for it but it was in the same course where I read that book Homicide with Professor Regan. And so the study goes like this you bring in people into the lab and you make them uh stand in a waiting room and you just put either a blue sticker on them or a a red sticker which you say to them oh it's for ostensibly it's for something else later right and i'm going to come back in a few minutes to do part two of the test that's what you tell them and the real point of the experiment is to then see how people start interacting with each other in the waiting room, and what do they end up doing? All of the blue dot people start talking to each other, and all of mm. so now it doesn't matter whether I'm black or white, whether I'm straight or or gay, whether I'm transgender or not, or tall or short. Really, what matters now is whether I have a blue dot on my mm. shirt <laughs> or a red dot. So, so to answer your question. I think the fact that we are divisive and tribal, it is an indelible part of our human nature and has existed since time immemorial. I think what is regrettable about the current moment is that the things, as you said, that we are being tribal about is some of the dumbest S-H-I-T <laughs> stuff that I've ever imagined, right? You can so, say uh, it.
3: You can say it. <laughs> dumbest shit. Dumbest we got shit.
1: You. Yeah. Dumbest shit that I've never seen. Do you, want me, do you want me to add to that? Absolutely, so,
2: <laughs> yeah. Follow up on that. Well, one. I would say we're only going to ruin it by talking. I, so I, you that's, that's what I'm saying. Like, yes. I, just
1: leave it. I mean, mic drop. Like the yeah. dumbest stuff ever. Right. So, so it, it, what I do in the parasitic mind for 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 the viewers who don't know about it, what I, what I'm basically arguing in the book is that in the same way that not only human minds but all across countless other animals, organisms can be parasitized. I mean, a tapeworm can parasitize your intestinal tract, but a neuroparasite goes to the host's brain, alters its behavior to suit its interests. So, for example, you could have a cricket that is parasitized by a particular brainworm. The cricket hates water, but when it is infected with this parasite, it actually happily jumps into water Mm. to its death because it serves the reproductive interests of the parasite which is infecting its brain. Mm. Or take, for example, Toxoplasma Gandhi is a parasite that infects not only human minds, it infects the minds, uh, the brains of uh, mice. Well, when a cat is infected with this parasite, it loses its innate fear of cats. It actually becomes sexually attracted to the, to the smell of the cat's urine, which is not wow. a very good sexual attraction to have. Yeah. And so when I saw the research on neuroparasites, I had my epiphany. I said, aha. I'm going to use that framework to explain how human minds, not only can they be parasitized by actual physical brain worms, they can be parasitized by idea pathogens. They could be ideologically parasitized to now succumb to this stupid dumb shit that can drive us off the cliff into infinite lunacy. And so that's why the book is called The Parasitic Mind, right? How these idea pathogens can can take hold Mm. of our to think rationally and so what i argue in the book is that each of these idea pathogens postmodernism militant feminism social constructivism cultural relative all these different you know idiotic ideas they all regrettably i say regrettably because i'm a professor they all were spawned within the university ecosystem because as mm-hmm. i often remind people it takes intellectuals to come up with some of the dumbest shit and so <laughs> and so what I basically do in the book is I describe those idea pathogens, mm. and then as any good physician would do if they diagnose you with a disease, I then offer a mind vaccine against mm. these
2: drugs. Mm. Mm. Yeah, so uh, first purchase I'm making as soon as we leave here is this the book. book. Yeah. <laughs> because- <laughs> you think? So So, do you think that some people, um, and, and whether it's, uh, whether it's from – you know their their upbringing whether it's it's innate like biologically in them do you think some people are more susceptible to those ideological parasites or do you oh, think it's you, just uh, well look you're talking about like I, the
1: woke the woke
2: yeah the woke woke folk.
1: let's just go right
2: to
4: it i, <laughs> I that? love
1: that question yes. because i am currently working on a project with one of my graduate students where we are specifically trying to answer that question mm-hmm. uh I think it's a bit of both, Uh, and so let me give you an example of that. I I think that if, you know, uh, you are inculcated with some of this stuff through going to Wellesley and Oberlin, Mm -hmm. then that's part of the learning part. But I also think that there are innate mechanisms that might explain whether I become wokeified or not, Mm -hmm. and I, I hint at that. Well, more than hit. I actually offer a theory. I don't know if you've you know how far along you got in the parasitic mind, but at one point I talk about male feminists. And by the way, I'm going to say a a swear word, but it's actually a zoological term: male feminists as sneaky fuckers, right? And where does that term come from? So in 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 the animal kingdom, there there is what's called the sneaky fucker strategy, or or the fancier scientific term will be kleptogamy. This is where you have males in a species that come in two forms for example, let's say in some f- fish species you've got a dominant looking male that looks like a male and then there is a kind of uh, male that mimics a female so yeah. that when he he's trying to get access to to the females the male guard will look at that sneaky, fucker Mm. and let him in thinking that that male is a female right Mm. and so i argue that that phenomenon that you see in many species in the animal kingdom Mm. is what explains how some male feminists behave right so they wear the scarf they hug the trees they're so sensitive they cry at bridget jones diary (laughs) well those are not guys that look like navy seals so to your question about the biological mechanisms i think that most male feminists who are, you know, pursuing the sneaky fuck, fucker strategy, have certain morphological features that give them away. And now there is some proof to my theory because some other scholars that I cite in the parasitic mind have shown that people's ideologies, when it comes to, for example, uh social redistribution of resources, right? So, for example, do you believe in social welfare state, Communist. or will it, sorry communism communism right or do you believe in military interventionism Mm -hmm. that so to your question about are some of these things innate it turns out that a very strong predictor of your ideological positions on some on these issues Mm -hmm. is your physical strength and your musculature meaning men who are physically dominant are less likely to support political mm-hmm. ideologies of social welfare and mm-hmm. pacifism and so on. Mm-hmm. So to answer your question and hopefully an interesting, but long-winded yeah. way, mm-hmm. I think it, I think it is partly the environment and partly your biology that determines your commitment to woke, woke bullshit.
0: Yeah. Mm. I, I try to be charitable of other people's perspectives. I try to, you know, listen and, and engage. It's hard sometimes. As, however, as, as you know, say it, however, however, yeah, it, it, I want to, I want to give people the benefit of the doubt that it's coming from a good place, right? They're, they're wanting to make good changes and, and they're wanting to look out for the, the oppressed. And so I want to say that it's coming from a good place. The problem is there's a lot of bad actors too. So where's the line of, we want everybody to be better off, but we're taking it way too far.
1: Uh, I actually exactly addressed that question in the parasitic mind. I got to get I, to that chapter.
4: He's <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> it's actually in the intro. So you just yeah. told me that you have not <laughs> even opened over it. it. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so, I, I, so each of these idea pathogens, so postmodernism, for example, is that there are no absolute truths. Everything mm-hmm. is subjective. Everything is relative. Who are we to talk about an objective that. truth, right? So that would be postmodernism. I call that the granddaddy of all idea pathogens because it attacks even the possibility of seeking truth right so it attacks the fundamental epistemology of truth but you know social constructivism is an idea pathogen that says hey we're all born tabula rasa you know uh, darren woodson did not have any biological advantages over you know more silberstein five foot two uh you know it's only because mommy hugged darren that he became a great safety in the yeah. nfl right? so social constructivism puts the whole weight of our life trajectories on social construction nothing could have been due to biology mm-hmm. and so one of the things i wanted to answer in the book is what do if anything do all of these very different idea pathogens have in common and this is where i come exactly to your intuition excuse me <clears throat> excuse me so and, and that is that they all start off with a noble goal mm-hmm. right but then in the pursuit of that noble goal they murder and rape truth in the service of that noble goal so mm-hmm. take for example transgender activism okay well i can completely support i could totally get behind the fact that all human beings should live free of and should live dignified lives and so sign me up as a transgender activist but where you get me to come off the train is where you then say well in order for us to have transgender rights you better say that men too can be pregnant and men too can Mm, menstruate otherwise you're a transphobe so what's happening there is in the service of that original noble goal which we could all get behind well we must rape and murder truth no we, I can walk and chew gum at the same time. I could be for pursuing noble social justice goals without ever violating an inch of the truth.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: All right, I want to take a quick minute to talk about our partner, Choctaw Casino and Resort. Uh, we are really, really humbled uh, and grateful to be a partner for them. If you've listened to the show for any amount of time, uh, you've heard how great the resort is there, how great the casino is. The new expansion, they've doubled in size, 3,000 new slots. They've got unbelievable sports bar, they've got unbelievable restaurants, unbelievable movie theaters, arcades for kids. It is endless the things that they've not only improved but added. Um, but it's just an The the experience that they provide is second to none. Choctaw Nation has done an incredible job with the community, with philanthropy, with support. Um, They have just done incredible things. So we are extremely humbled and grateful to partner with Choctaw Casino and Resort. Make sure, I know you know it, it's just a short drive of 75. Go check them out. And now back to the episode. But isn't that a a small segment
3: that actually firmly believes that? I mean, most of those that are transgender, they don't walk you down that line, correct? You're absolutely right. But
1: to, to that point, if I were to ask you, how many really committed zealots did it take to alter the absolutely. Uh, landscape of mm-hmm. New York City? Was it 19 million terrorists? Was it 190 million mm-hmm. terrorists? Oh, no, it was 19 terrorists, right? Correct. So we don't, we don't need tons of blue-haired Taliban folks to in order to keep the rest of us quiet and in check Absolutely. so you're exactly right yes. there in that mm-hmm. that very few people are the committed woke extremists but they are sufficiently committed and sufficiently vociferous that then they keep the rest of the cowards in check in their cowardly silence right yeah, so a few great. good a few crazy people can keep the rest of us in check. Yeah. So, uh, talk, so talk talk about the idea because this this postmodernism
2: like create your own truth idea like that that I just I really struggle with because just the idea that you can create your own truth out of anything out of just like out of air from a parenting perspective. Where, where are we getting lost in parenting our children from a young age, allowing, hey, you figure out you and you get to do this as opposed to a a little bit more of a legalistic type of parenting. Like, look, Hey, here's, here are the facts. Here's what like physically here is what is true. Here is legally what is true. I mean, there are hard truths in life. And I think some of these kids of these younger ages, and maybe it's because parents are absent. Maybe it's because parents are distracted whatever it may be but man imposing on our children at a very young age is like look there is a right there is a wrong there's a truth and there's an untruth
1: yeah so i'll answer that first in a broader way and then we could we could apply it to parenting or to anything else so one i i draw a distinction in, in chapter two of the parasitic mind between deontological ethics and consequentialist ethics deontological ethics are absolute truth so for example if i were to make the following statement it is never okay to lie that would be a deontological statement on the other hand Mm -hmm. if i were to say it is okay to lie if you're trying to spare someone's feelings then that would be a consequentialist ethical position Mm -hmm. because i'm saying that given the consequences in that case of trying to spare someone's feelings then that case it would be okay to lie now the reality so for example, if you want to have a long-lasting marriage when your spouse says, <laughs> do I look fat in those jeans? Mm. Then you should put on quickly your consequentialist yes. okay, Of course not. You look gorgeous, sweetie. And then you can hopefully <laughs> celebrate your 25th year wedding anniversary. Right? Okay. So the reality is that for many aspects in life, mm. we should be consequentialist. But there are some elements on which we should be absolutely inviolable in our commitment to the deontological position Mm -hmm. and so whether it be in in imparting certain rules of behavior to our children whether it be in how tolerant we should be towards criminal whether we should be so for example as many of you know uh, or you may or may not know I recently had a big spat with a supposed former friend of mine Sam Harris a very well-known public intellectual because he in my view committed a huge violation of the deontological ethics because he's supposed to be this ultra super smart intellectual who said hey i'm all for freedom of speech but mm. when it comes to donald trump he's so dangerous that it makes perfect sense that he not be afforded freedom of speech mm. no moron no imbecile no grotesque cretin no disrespect to my former friend There are deontological principles that you never violate, right? Mm. Presumption of innocence does not get, is not something that we adhere to except for that really one bad guy, right? right? right. It applies to everybody. So there are certain precepts that have made Western societies, the great societies that they are precisely because they are founded on a bedrock of deontological principles. So to to tie it back down to your parenting question, Mm. I don't go to my child and say, hey, look, please follow the rules of behavior of the district attorney in San Francisco, whereby it is okay to steal as long as it's under nine (laughs) hundred and fifty dollars. No, I tell him I put on my deontological hat. Hey, son never steal that which does not belong to you. There is no equivocating. Mm -hmm. It could be a chewing gum. It could be a gold nugget. never steal. So, so I I guess I've answered your question Mm -hmm. in a a broader, more philosophical way. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I'm sure you discussed this in the book and and I know we're running up against the clock here. So maybe we ended on this. Is there any, in your opinion, is there any putting the genie back in the bottle? I mean, are we, are we too far gone Mm -hmm. down that direction? Maybe most of us feel a certain way, but there's enough that are disrupting everything else. Is there any coming back together or are we gone for good here?
1: No, I, I, I try to leave people off with, with some optimism, not because I'm trying to just be hopeful and optimistic because I genuinely think- You're going to lie that, to make us feel good is what you were saying. <laughs> <laughs> the, the silent majority hates that stuff. Yeah. Okay. And, and I know this because I receive the thousands of- emails from professors, from students, from parents of students, all of whom say, thank you, I'm too afraid to speak, but I, I hate this garbage, right? So what we need to do is simply ignite the fire of courage in these people, right? I mean, th- the reason why this is happening is because it's it, it involves a confluence of factors, one part of which is regrettably that most people are incredibly cowardly. I've always said that we need to mm-hmm. update the seven deadly sins to add an eighth sin called cowardice. This yes. is why military heroes are honored. This is why intellectual heroes are honored because it is rare for people to be courageous. Most people are little cowardly. They're 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 invertebrate. They don't have a spine. They're castrated. They don't have testicles. And they merrily walk along the world just you know saying, yes, boss, yes, ma'am, right? Mm-hmm. So if there is a way for us to ignite the courage in people and if we speak in unison i promise you we'll get rid of this bullshit by next tuesday if mm. we don't mm. it the autocorrective mechanism will take generations and what a shame because instead of solving this problem very quickly it will be a lot more costly to solve mm. it later mm. we will solve it by the way
4: mm-hmm.
1: and if we don't solve it peacefully Regrettably, we will solve it the way we solve problems in the Middle East. Yeah. So the choice is ours: do we want to solve it through debating, or do we want to solve it by house-to-house fighting? In a hundred years, the choice is yours. Mm.
0: Yeah, I, I'm I'm with you. I think I think it does course correct. It's just the question is how long does it take? To your point, are, are enough are enough of us going to speak up? or enough of us going to put it into? You know, it's this falls under the cowardly category. It could it, a lot of us just go about our day and don't even think about it. We're just going about our lives. We're staying in our bubbles. We're doing our own thing. It doesn't personally affect me, so I'm going to keep doing me. And that's exactly. that's a form in a broad sense. That can be a form of cowardice. You're just burying your head in the sand.
1: Well, it's not only cowardice, It's it's existential selfishness right because it yes. says i need to worry about my daughter's graduation and i need to pick up the onions that my wife told me to get today let some other asshole worry about let you know god has got big shoulders mm. you know he'll handle it for me at the university yeah. no we all have a voice now of course we don't have all have equal ability sure. to fight battle some some guys are air force pilots and they drop big bombs some people do house to house trench warfare but we all have a contribution you might only contribute by asking your professor politely and challenging him but speak out you may go to the pub with a friend of yours who says that what are you talking about men too can have babies and then you say really let's talk about it right so i'm not suggesting that everybody should take the same risks and mm. i understand that people are afraid to lose their jobs and so on so it's up to each person to modulate their level of risk tolerance and so on but what is unacceptable is that you say i'm unwilling to do anything yeah. and by the way if i can just link one more point to your all your, the football stuff that we talked about earlier you know i said that i love new orleans saints i love alva camara i also love drew Brees because yeah. i thought he was such a cool quarterback drew Brees really pissed me off with his you know 70 different apologies because he said that you know he loves the american flag or something Mm -hmm. and that offended his teammates right so here's a guy and i you know i feel kind of ashamed telling to pro football players about you know the 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 violence and the physical courage in in the sport but here's a guy who is avoiding uh guys who are coming at him 350 pounds to decapitate him so you would think my god he's the model of courage but apparently he doesn't have testicles because when it came to then defending what do you mean i'm not going to apologize for loving the united states i'm not going to apologize for standing up for the fly. f you teammate if you're offended by that he suddenly turned into a little girl so even big macho football players can turn out to be little castrated little girls and so that's why i say to people find your spine find your testicles, speak out, mm. have honor, have integrity. The people who landed on Normandy beaches, who were 18 years old, knew that most of them were going to be mowed down like little mosquitoes by the German machine guns, and yet they signed up. They said, I'll do it. So if someone's going to call you racist and transphobe, and if that's your biggest threat to not speaking out, you're a moron, start finding yes. your Yes, mm.
2: yes. Go ahead. Two things, two things. Is that last Amen. thought, that, and what that did is and again i love drew and i and i respect him in many ways but but i agree is what that did especially on such a big platform it gave courage to that minority right that minority that thinks that hey we can do this and we can get our way and if we just we can we can cancel them we can we can shame him we can do all these things and again you think about it right someone like drew Brees, probably let's just talk social media standards probably has what two or three million followers on twitter he probably had 2000 like look at the ratio of of just just ridiculousness coming at him okay mm-hmm. in the scheme of things you forget about the the majority just to appease a few people but again convictions and that's what's that's what's really sad about our culture and i think you know you go from to, to a religious aspect right and when you grew up your religion forced you to not only have to move your, from your homeland, but put your life at risk. When was the last time someone actually stood up, put their life on their line for their faith, for their religion, whatever it is. I mean, they're doing it in China. They're doing it all the time over there. They're doing it in the Middle East. They're doing it in Nepal. They're doing it all over the globe. But here we're, we are, we don't have true convictions that we're willing to risk ourselves for risk, monetary loss, Uh, physical loss. I mean, and ultimately death for something that we say that we believe in. We don't have that. And when we do give, when we do give into the pressure, the shame, then all we're doing is throwing more gas on the fire because now that's giving courage to, to the minority. That's just going to attack, attack, attack. It's that Sue culture. Like I don't want to do anything. So I'm just going to sue and, and even right or wrong, I'm going to make a bunch of money. And so now you got all these people that Wanna sue and and that the other thing is is Dr. Said if you could just the people that are the majority, that are silent, that do want to do something, there is a right way to do it and there's a wrong way to do it because there is a way to be divisive, right? There is a way like Trump again his approach. It divided people just as much as it as it brought people together. So, what is your what is your guidance to those people? Whether it be, hey, first of all, you got to get educated. Two is you've got to approach it with this sort of deliver. I mean, what is that that advice to handle it in a constructive way?
1: Well, I look. Uh- there are different persuasion tactics that you can use. For example, I you, often will use satire or sarcasm because it's a, it's right. a very, uh, you know, approach. On other cases, I could be very professorial and austere. So there, there isn't a single, you know, universal key of how to persuade people. I say that, you know, until forced to be otherwise, be kind, be polite, mm-hmm. but be strong in your convictions, right? That's why in, in the last chapter of the book, I talk about, you know, activating your inner honey badger. The reason why I use that animal imagery is because, as you guys probably know, the honey badger has been uh, rated as the the fiercest of all animals in the animal kingdom. Right? It's the size of a small dog, and yet it is so ferocious that it could withstand an approach by six adult male lions, I and mean, the reason why I say sex is because you could find those footage on on, on YouTube, right? And it, it, it just is so intimidating, it goes so crazy. Now, that doesn't mean people sometimes think that I mean, be violent, that's not what I mean. I mean, be ideologically fierce, right? If you have a position that you think you can articulate why you hold that position, then never back down, never apologize. Look, I, you know, the, the amount of, I mean, I technically, should be cancelled monday morning of any monday by about 9 30 in the morning because i probably tweet more stuff that would have gotten other people cancelled by monday morning than in your entire career <laughs> yet i'm still standing not that i wish to uh, you know jinx uh, the cosmos but i'm still standing because i've sent out the message that if you come after me you better not miss because i'm coming after you i'm coming after your dead ancestors i'm coming after your descendants i mean that again metaphorically right meaning that i'm never going to back down from the principles that are dear to me and because i am confident that i'm able to enunciate why i hold those positions now by the way if you debate me and you win we'll shake hands and i say you know what you won you've you've proved me wrong but i never back away from a fight Mm -hmm. and therefore All I would implore people to do is to have that commitment. Which style you use is different depending on the context. You could be dogged. You could be humorous. You could be polite. You could be a a bit more spicy. That's for you to decide. But just participate. Don't diffuse the responsibility onto the others to take care of the dirty work for you. Yeah,
0: Yeah, Um, I, I think part of confidence and courage comes from preparation. And I think that's a good point that you made, which is, Find out what you think. Really think it through. Really form that opinion, not based on what, you know, your favorite influencer said, but really because of it's your conviction and what you truly believe. So I think right. that's a great mm-hmm. take-home lesson. Another take-home lesson is by The Parasitic Mind and yes. and, and read that immediately. On. Uh, that's, that's one of my biggest takeaways from here. Dr. Gad, we really so much appreciate your time. You boys have any uh no, any Doc, that was
3: awesome. Thank you for your time today. Really you
1: appreciate it. You guys are it. a blast. And by the way, uh, Darren, I don't know if I had written this to you. Can I presume that if I ever find my way in Dallas, I'm getting Dallas Cowboys tickets?
3: Come on. We got you. We got oh, you, right. doc. Hey, we're hey, we, don't start no shit while you're down there, please. Okay. <laughs> None of that New Orleans, Dallas hey. garbage.
0: We'll we'll get you a seat right in the middle of the star in the middle of the field. Yeah. We got you. Oh my god!
2: Oh my god! But no, really, if you ever are in Dallas, please reach out. We'd love to connect. Yeah. Uh, go have yeah, dinner, we'll and I want to. I want to hear the whole story. Yeah, this podcast could have yeah. been six hours. Yes. yes.
1: And if it's possible that when we're walking together, you could all walk on your knees. So that <laughs> you don't get- some of us are not six foot two. And uh, eight. No, and we're going so like to go. yeah. Yeah. We're have bo- the courage to stand up. up. Yeah. We're going to have the courage to stand up. I believe in being
2: tall, and I'm going to be...
1: The, the reason I say this, by the way, is because I went, re- I mean, maybe two years ago or three years ago, before the pandemic, to Texas to, to appear on Glenn Beck's show. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yep. every guy who was there at dinner, I basically came up to his knees. <laughs> I, the shortest guy was maybe six foot five. I'm like, what the F, man? Yeah. You, guys, uh, you got set you up,
2: Doc. You got set up for sure. <laughs> that, that must have been on purpose. That was, that was a power <laughs> move by uh Glenn Beck.
0: Doctor Saad, thank you so yes. much, sir. We really appreciate thank guys. it. Thank uh, you so much. Have a great one. All right. Thanks, everybody. Okay, bye. Okay, bye.